Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people and about spiritually related topics. I've done over 660 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see them organized in several different ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to support it, there is a PayPal button on every page of the website. Also, I encourage you to uh, subscribe to this YouTube channel if you're so inclined, and that way YouTube will notify you of new interviews as they're posted. And also we can notify you. We have an email list that you can sign up for on the, on BatGap. My guest today is Dr. Mario Beauregard, PhD. He's a neuroscientist. In your bio, it says currently affiliated with the Department of Psychology, University of Arizona, but he, he just not anymore. <laughs> not anymore as of last no. summer. Now he's uh, about 80 miles north of Montreal and Quebec. Right. He has received a bachelor's degree in psychology and a doctorate in neuroscience from the University of Montreal. He also underwent postdoctoral fellowships at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston and the Montreal Neurological Institute and McGill University. This bio is a little long, but I'm going to read the whole thing, most, most of it, because there's a lot of good stuff in here. And you'll get to know uh, Dr. Bogard better. He is the author of more than 100 publications in neuroscience, psychology, and psychiatry. He was the first neuroscientist to use functional neuroimaging to investigate the neural underpinnings of voluntary control in relation to emotion. Because of his research into the neuroscience of consciousness, he was selected in 2000 by the World Media Net to be one of the, quote, 100 pioneers of the 21st century. In addition, his groundbreaking research on the neurobiology of spiritual experiences, including near-death experiences, has received international media coverage. In 2008, he was invited to participate in a symposium held at the UN. In 2013, he participated in a dialogue with the Dalai Lama in regard to the new science of mind. Dr. Beauregard has appeared all over radio programs in the US, Canada, Europe, Asia, and Australia. His research has been featured on the Discovery Channel and in many newspapers and magazines, and he's received a number of distinctions. He's an author. He has published, quote, The Spiritual Brain, HarperCollins, and Brain Wars. In these books, he demonstrates that mind and consciousness are much more than the activity of nerve cells in our brains which is in large part what we're going to talk about today. He also shows that spirituality is a central feature of human beings that cannot be reduced to physical processes. Dr. Beauregard actively contributes to the articulation of the new post-materialist scientific paradigm. Co-author of The Manifesto for a Post-Materialist Science, which has been signed by several hundred scientists, he is also one of the founders of the Academy for the Advancement of Postmaterialist Sciences. So that all might sound rather heady, postmaterialist sciences, a new paradigm and all, but this is something that has really interested me tremendously since I was in college in the 80s. And uh, I think it's extremely important and hopefully we'll be able to 
show you why as we have this conversation. What's the name of your new book? I just read the whole thing, but I forgot the title. Expanding Reality. Expanding uh, Reality. Good. The Emergence of Post-Materialist Science. Right. So before we get into that, there was an experience that you described in your book. I'll just start reading it and you'll know what I'm talking about. One evening I was so desperate that I mentally bellowed at the sky. Apparently my supplication did not fall on deaf ears. And this is because you had gotten very sick and been sick for a long time. And then a being of light radiating immense and unconditional love reassured you telepathically that what you were experiencing was no disease, but rather a process of transmutation. And he told you you were not alone. You had to hang in there. And he told you about certain events that would take place shortly in your life and that your disease would diminish over the coming months. And all of those predictions came true. Let's start with that. What more would you like to tell people about that? The word transmutation is interesting. It's like you were being squeezed out (laughs) like a cloth in order to be ready for something that you were supposed to do in life. Yeah. When I was younger, uh, at primary school, uh, I was very good, and the uh, the teachers uh, they made me skip a few years, which was fine. But uh, I didn't want to arrive at the university too young, so I decided to take off a year, and I uh, I went to work in a humanitarian hospital. I was working with handicapped children, and the uh, the hospital was. Uh, uh, directed by Catholic nuns. It was very close to uh, Jerusalem in Israel. And I became very sick there. I was 17 uh, years old back then. But I contracted uh, an infection, but uh, we didn't know what exactly. Fortunately, the symptoms uh, vanished after about a week. And uh, so I, I worked there. For uh, a number of months, then I came back to Canada. But a year after that, I started uh, my studies at the University of Montreal in psychology. And I was beginning my second semester when one morning I woke up and I had lots of symptoms in my body and my visual perception was altered and I was not taking any drugs and I didn't know what was happening, but I was very weak. And to make a long story short, I've been forced to uh, quit my studies at the university. And I went back to my parents' home. My parents were farmers in uh, a region of Quebec uh, that is called uh, the Eastern Townships. It's close uh, to the border with Vermont. So I went there and I spent uh, almost a year lying down in a bed like a patient suffering from terminal cancer or AIDS. And so I, I was not able to eat. I was not able to, uh, to do anything. And I felt like dying. And that's when I decided that many years before that, it was 11 years before that, I had another experience, a mystical experience on the farm of my parents. And during that experience, I've had the impression that I downloaded my uh, life mission Wow. My program. I saw clearly I was eight years old. It was during uh, the summer break, during the vacations in July. I received or I saw clearly what I had to do in my life, what I would do as an adult. And uh, 
I realized that I would be involved in a scientific movement and that the goal was to demonstrate to the general population on the planet Earth that contrary to what mainstream science was saying at that time, mind, consciousness, and spirit are not located or produced by the brain. They are interacting with the brain. And you had that cognition when you were eight? Exactly. Very strange. Had you been thinking about that kind of thing? No. No, No, you were just like a kid. You're playing baseball or whatever. All all of a sudden... I I was in the woods when it happened. Yeah. So I told my parents about that, but uh, they didn't understand anything about (laughs) it. They couldn't understand how a child could talk about these things and couldn't know something like that. But anyway, that's when I decided to become a neuroscientist. I knew I had to become a neuroscientist. So that was the beginning. But 12 years later, when I felt very sick, then I was confused because I knew what was my life mission, if you will. But I was not in a physical condition anymore to be able to realize that life plan because I was too sick and I I couldn't understand that. And I was even thinking I had bad thoughts. I was thinking even about killing myself at one point. And that's when I asked for help. My parents were religious. They were uh, Roman Catholic. And I was an altar boy when I was younger. And I was a religious uh, boy at that time. And so I decided to ask for help. And a few days after that, during one night, I had the impression that my soul body or my spiritual body, if you will, was extracted forcefully from my physical body at the level of the heart, from what people call the heart center or chakra. That's what happened. And then I saw a beautiful being of light, and it seemed to be more masculine. So I, t- I thought he was a guide. And he showed me uh, things about how you can end up when you decide to kill yourself. What can happen? In what kind of sphere of existence you will end up for a while? Not, not for a eternity, place, but, I imagine. but still showed me that. Sort and, of a dark place or something that you would end up for a while? Yeah, grayish. Uh, right. Yeah. So that was the first part of the experience. And then... He told me about what was going on uh, in my body and to not get discouraged because it was essential apparently for my transformation and for the deciphering of my future research program. So I was not sure what was the meaning of all this, but he talked about a process of transmutation, total transmutation. Do you have a better understanding of it now? All these oh, years? yes, because... Yes, That was the turning point of my uh, experience. Overall, I've been extremely sick. And uh, it took seven years to a famous doctor in Montreal to discover what was going on. He identified five different types of viruses that I had contracted in Israel. And the severity of what he saw in the, uh, the test, the results of the test, was incredible. And he told me that he didn't understand why I was not dead because he had seen other patients before like this and i told him about my experience he was a bit open-minded he was coming from the farm his parents were farmers also so i thought perhaps this guy will be able to to hear that so i told him everything and he said 
medicine is, is limited. It's based on science, but it's an art also, and uh, we don't know everything. But uh, I was considered to be a miraculous case, apparently. I find it so interesting that you had this download when you were eight, and then uh -huh. this being of light was talking to you and everything. And I just really feel like we're guided, you know, that this physical reality that we live in and perceive is not the only thing and that there's so much more going on on we could say higher levels or subtler levels mm -hmm. and many of the goings on pertain to us you know there are beings there who are guiding us inspiring us and who, who have a almost a vested interest in our success in certain areas we're here to accomplish something and they are helping us and you know nudging yeah. us along But you know what happened after that is that I became extremely uh, psychic and spiritual, very spiritual. But for whatever reason, I left the church. I was very spiritual, but the tradition didn't interest me for whatever reason. When I was younger, uh, my parents were hoping that perhaps I would become a priest eventually. Mm -hmm. When I was very young, six, seven years, I was already an altar boy and It was something of value back then, because we're talking about late 60s, beginning of the 70s. Religion was still very influential in, in Quebec. But I uh, decided to leave and uh, to follow my own path. I also received, at about the same time, the grand uh, axis of my uh, scientific career, what I would do, the most important questions. Received meaning psychically cognized. What? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was in my early 20s, but it's been tough to go back to university because my directors, my supervisors, who were neurologists, one neurologist, the other uh, psychiatrist, they were atheists, materialists, and they didn't want me to go back to university because they thought I was... I had a schizoid type of personality. That's what they told me. They thought you were crazy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right, but crazy. <laughs> right. So, because you were telling him some of this stuff. Well, okay. yeah, because I, I felt I had to, to be honest, but it was not the right move because <laughs> he put me on the, a blacklist. So I needed a miracle to be able to, uh, to go back. So... Uh, The doctor who examined me at the hospital in Montreal, uh, he wrote a letter for me, tried to convince the guys at the university that I was not crazy. And it did work. So that's when I, I went back to uh, the university. Can you say more about this psychic, spiritual stuff that was going on? A lot of remote viewing, uh, clairvoyance and clairvoyance. Telepathy with, uh, but with people who were close, my family, especially my sister, but also other people. And, uh, the impression of being in touch with, uh, deceased people also a lot, deceased people that I knew. And, uh, it has stayed like that for now. I'm, uh, I turned a uh, 60 year old, um, last summer and it's still like that. Never changed. Interesting. And you never yeah. really tried to do this stuff. It just no. became, became natural. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, but I discovered that my mother was like that, but she didn't say it. Ah, she, runs in the family. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she didn't know if it was okay or not. She didn't want to. Because didn't want she to get was burned following. at the stake. Yes. 
but she was a lot like that. Huh, interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so that's a little bit about your background. It's a fascinating story. I, I love it. I wish we all had such a clear vision of our purpose in life at a young age. A lot of us bounce around for a while before we find it, if we find it. But you obviously had a mission. If we were to talk to some people who talk about life between lives and all, they would probably say that you agreed on all this before you even came here. Oh, I've been Do you have any memory that. of that? Yeah, you've been exactly. told that. Yes, yeah. I've been told that by the, the, the being of light. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. But said you don't remember it. But yes, that was part of your plan. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's you probably heard of Michael Newton and then yes. Gary, and then um, guy Rob Schwartz, whom I've interviewed, and they say that any significant thing that we end up doing in life was pretty much prearranged. Any mm-hmm. significant person that we're involved with, or you know, an accident, or perhaps your even your your sickness period, all that stuff yeah, was yeah. foreseen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Do you feel like the sickness period was an essential? purgation of some kind, a purification, maybe karmically, if not physiologically. Something like that, yes. Oh, yes. It was very difficult. There was inflammation everywhere in the body, including my brain. My brain was infected. And that's why my visual perception was altered. It was very severe. And so that's why the doctor, the specialist, told me, it's a miracle that you're still alive after all those years when I met him. So we could conclude then so far from what you've been saying that there are not only people on earth, but there are higher beings and and higher dimensions who feel strongly that humanity needs to change its thinking, that it needs to change the paradigm on which it functions, namely that the world is a material thing and that the brain produces consciousness and all. So why would you say that these beings and also people like yourself who work on this stuff feel that this is so important? What kind of difference is it going to make? What would happen to the world if it really changed? Because it's a matter of the kind of worldview we entertain. For instance, in science, the founders, the people we call the founders of modern science, like uh, Galileo, Galilei, uh, Descartes, uh, Newton, and company, all these people were deeply spiritual and religious as well. But what happened is that the church, uh, there was a council, and the church, the pope, and the, the cardinals let the emerging scientists know that the church would take care of the non-physical world, the non-material world. It was of interest to the uh, theologians, philosophers, and the so-called material world would be the object of research of the uh, emerging scientists, the new science, the physicists back then, especially. And the physicists, they didn't have the choice. They accepted that. So after a few generations of scientists, the new scientists during the 19th century, they forgot totally about the history of science. And they didn't know that. They were not aware of that, except for a few exceptions, rare exceptions. So they thought that the founders of modern science were strictly materialists, that they only believed in 
back then they were talking about corpuscles or you know billiard balls small billiard balls and uh, that were composing the universe and that was it there was nothing else so that's how after a number of generations during the 19th century science became synonymous with materialism and it became what uh, has been called the the scientific materialist worldview and according to this worldview like you said everything is composed in the universe of material principles uh, corpuscles or particles or, or waves so this means that when you die there's nothing yet. your personality and your consciousness they vanish automatically this means also that you don't have any free will you cannot really exert any effect on your brain or on the other physiological systems connected to the nervous system uh, the immune system the endocrine system so you only have an illusion of influencing but in reality you're like a robot a biological machine sophisticated but still so what i'm trying to say is that this world view which became an ideology it has had very negative impact on society and it became really an ideology by the end of the 19th century and during the most of the 20th century this was the central dogma so if you were a scientist and you dared publicly challenge this there was a price that you're going to you, you would have to pay ultimately and this is exactly what happened but i don't know if you are aware of the work about what we call paradigm so called paradigm thomas kuhn yeah for instance yeah i read his book yeah so we could say that materialism was like the big or the the meta paradigm which ruled everything but after a while there were scientists who uh, investigated other types of phenomena than physics so they were not in mathematics but they were studying what was called back then parapsychology so extrasensory perception like telepathy or clairvoyance remote viewing and precognition also but some of them were also investigating the possible influence of mind over the material world over matter so that was an avenue of research which started at the end of the 19th century in 1974 dr moody raymond moody the psychiatrist i met him uh, on a couple of occasions uh, during uh, conferences he reported what he called uh, near death experience and then after that after him we discovered that millions of people had had near death experience in the western world uh, since uh, the 1950s that's what the statistics are showing and so these sort of phenomena were considered if you were looking at them through the lens of the materialist paradigm they were considered to be anomalous anomalies but you know a paradigm it's the type of lens that you are wearing if you challenge the materialist uh, paradigm then it's possible to accept these phenomena and to integrate them into another theoretical structure another framework or paradigm and this is exactly what we did i knew exactly that that was part of my job to do that so when i was at the university of arizona 
It was also an idea of Gary Schwartz, who invited me there. And we thought about organizing a, a symposium of maverick researchers in various fields. Black sheep, physics, biology. So there were people like uh, Rupert Sheldrake, the famous uh, British uh, biologist. Dean Radin, one of the best psychologists in the world, or psi researcher, as they say now. People like that in neuroscience. I was taking care of the neuroscience, but we had mathematicians also and philosophers, a few philosophers. We spent three days together in Tucson. At the end, I wrote a document that was called the Manifesto for a Post-Materialist Science. It was co-written by my colleagues. And uh, it's been signed by, like you said uh, at the beginning of the interview, by hundreds of scientists from around the world. So post-materialists, it's vague. It doesn't mean what it is. But what we're saying is that we need a different paradigm. The old way cannot explain a ton of phenomena related to mind consciousness, spirituality, spiritual experiences. So we need something else. And so since it was in 2014, the manifesto, a few years after that, we created the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Material Science. And since then, there's a growing movement. When I was younger, when I began my career as a young scientist, I had an encounter with a famous neuroscientist, one of the pioneers of neuroscience, Dr. Jasper, Herbert Jasper. He was the friend of um, Dr. Penfield, the guy who created, they created the Montreal Neurological Institute in the 1920s, at the end of the 1920s. So uh, he allowed me to talk to him. And so he asked me, he was about 93 years old at that moment. And he asked me, what was my plan? Why did I want to talk to him? And so I told him about my vision for the future. And he said, you are shaking they will demolish you. You will have a very hard life. It will be very difficult for you. Don't do that. Play the game. Be smart. If you play the game, you're bright. You will benefit from the system. You will uh, move you know, upward in the hierarchy and will end up at the top of the pyramid. But if you don't, you'll be a black sheep. You'll be seen as a <laughs> an heretic. Think about that. But I was very disappointed of my meeting with this famous researcher because that's what he had been doing for his entire career, even though he was not a materialist, but to protect himself. And that's what people were doing. But I was young and I was rebellious. I'm still rebellious. <laughs> so I decided, who cares? I want to shape the system, even though it may cost me dearly. I don't care. I'll do it. I know that's what I have to do. And I did. I was expelled from the University of Montreal in 2013. Really? For not being a materialist? I was working at the medical school yeah. and the dean of the school and my uh, direct directors, the departments where I was working, they were materialists. And at first I was doing the work that they enjoy, working with Big Pharma, checking the impact of drugs on the, on the brain. And this brings a lot of money to the institution as well. So that's how you, you have to do it. But I didn't want to do that. 
I knew I had to do something else, something totally different. I wanted to show that the brain was not the, the, the producer of mind consciousness spirit. So they thought I was totally crazy. And they were warning me. Each year, I was asked to go to the uh, office of the big boss at the Medskin School. And they were asking me. Sometimes they were, you know, a few people. They were looking at me. They were, and they were threatening me because I started to study near-death experience. I was the first to use a, a scanner, a brain imaging scanner, to examine what's happening during spiritual experiences in Carmelite nuns, cloistered nuns. Things like that. The media was covering this kind of research all over the world. And I was becoming very famous, but they didn't like that because that was not the kind of work they were expecting from me. And so they start threatening me and they told me, do you realize that we have the power to greatly influence what will happen to you in your future from a professional point of view? And I was not responding. I was not listening. So finally, after a lot of, after several years of confrontation and they decided to let me go, they didn't renew my contract as a researcher. So that's what happened. It's a funny story because a few days after that, I didn't know Gary Schwartz. We never met. Gary Schwartz received at about the same time a sort of intuition, an inner voice telling me to contact me. He knew who I was, even though he didn't know me personally. But he didn't know why. And after a few days, I received uh, an email from him. And he said, <laughs> I know that it will look very strange, but there's something compelling me or urging me to contact you and to ask you, is there anything I can do for you? And he didn't know why. So I, I responded to him immediately and we talked over the phone and, and then he said, my goodness, we would be uh, honored to have somebody like you here at the University of Arizona because over there, that's where the uh, first center for the research uh, on consciousness, first center of consciousness studies emerged at the, in 1995. So for whatever reason, there were more open minded scientists than on the East Coast or in Montreal or in Europe in general. And so I did a collaboration. That's how it started. That's very interesting. That's a great story. You've probably heard Max Planck saying that science progresses through a series of funerals. Exactly. That's, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's what I was. Because these guys get so stuck in their rut. And everybody's so concerned about their salary and their tenure and all this stuff mm -hmm. and you know whatever happened to finding out what's real and, and investigating what's true that goes out the window um, yeah but uh you know i learned that it was a science is a human institution like other human institutions so it's it's not necessarily about the truth but it's about who get the most money reputation fame glory rewards awards and I was an idealist. I was only interested in the truth, really. And, and you know, so, ironically, uh, you might get all that stuff during your lifetime, the money and the fame and all that stuff. But in 100 years, everyone will have forgotten about you, but they will uh, be remembering the people who are mavericks. Those are the people who end up being honored for changing the way the world works. 
But you know, it was the same thing in uh, when they have they've had their uh, revolution in physics, from classical physics to the new physics that they call quantum physics. It took thirty years for quantum physics to establish itself. It didn't happen like that. It took three decades. Yeah. And there's actually some benefit to that. We mentioned Thomas Kuhn in the structure of scientific revolutions. Yeah. He describes that paradigms have a certain inertia. And that's good because a paradigm shouldn't just be toppled the moment some little question comes along. It takes repeated buffeting by anomalies until eventually the anomalies get so strong that the paradigm has to collapse. And then a new paradigm gets formed. And there's a period of transition between the old and the new that can be kind of chaotic. But it's okay that things might take a little while to change because everything would be chaotic if everything changed too easily. Yes, but things are changing, really, because, uh, and I never thought I would see something like that, but even philosophers who were deeply materialist, philosophers of mind, interested in mind consciousness, neuroscientists, famous neuroscientists like uh, Christophe Koch, who was working with uh, Francis Crick, very materialist. One of the uh, he discoverers. Changed, he changed his mind, and Francis now he's Crick. becoming a, a, what we call a, technically a, a pan psychist. So he believes that there's consciousness or mind everywhere in the universe. And now you can see more and more books from philosophers and scientists about the waning of materialism. And so we are in a transition period, but I cannot tell you what exactly will be the new theory, the big theory. But I have some clues about it because, first of all, we need to recognize the existence of what we call mind because mind for materialist theories, either it does not exist. It's only uh, an artifact, uh, an illusion, or it does exist, but it doesn't exert any effect at all. It's like steam produced by the engine of a train or something like that. How can how can they say that? Because if in, in my mind I think I want to go and, and get something to drink, then my body gets up and I go. So isn't that an effect of my mind producing, you know, making me well, do that? That's the problem is because it seems uh well, if you're committed to materialism, what you will say is that your impression and your desire, your motivation, etc., it's only electrical and chemical activity in your brain. So they will say it's one part of your brain involved in executive functions, for instance, the the huge prefrontal cortex that we have, sending information to motor structures in the brain, and then that's how it works. And you have the impression, you're under the illusion that it's you. But in reality, it's the brain, regions of the brain affecting other structures or the regions in your brain and that's it you don't need a ghost and that's what they were telling me when i was younger we don't need a ghost in the machine there's no ghost in the machine so they didn't understand why that's what that was my conception but uh, i was telling them about the so-called psi phenomena and so they had to deny their existence to maintain their materialist worldview And same thing for near-death experience. But what about so-called near-death experience when there's a a cardio and a rest of your heart and at the same time of breathing? 
it's, which means clinical death. How do you explain that? So they were telling me, no, pure coincidence. But at a certain point, they don't have any explanation anymore. They're trapped. But what I discovered is that me and many others like Sheldrake and several others, it's an ideology and you're emotionally attached to your ideology. It's like politics, for instance. If you're a left-winger, right-winger, uh, communism versus socialism versus capitalism and you know, and so on and so forth. And so scientists are human beings and they are very deeply uh, involved in the, these things. Their life, their ideological life is built on a theoretical structure. And you arrive there and I was very young and I was trying to convince, I've had physical trouble with people because some of them try to attack me because it's a matter of emotion. It becomes really? you mean they very try emotional. To physically attack yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> wow. it's like a religion. It's your religion. So you're there and you're young. And uh, it reminds me, uh, 15 years ago, I was invited to Paris to the oldest and the most prestigious university, La Sorbonne in Paris. And they asked me to talk for about two hours. And at the end of the, the talk, there were a number of very old scientists who were members of the Academy of Science. And they were, after the, the talk, they will comment on what you just presented. And I was seeing them, several of them were becoming red and they were angry because of what I, So at the end, after two hours, the president of the committee told me, oh, it's too bad that we're not a few hundred years ago. I had an idea what he meant. Because you'd be burned at the stake or something? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Asked him and said, yes, that's what we would have done with you. That's what we should do with you. Wow. It's 2007. <laughs> you see? <laughs> so that gives you maybe, an idea. Maybe you were burned at the stake in some past life. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. but So it was like that for a while. But I would tell you that since about seven, eight years, I, and I've traveled all over the planet, Things are really changing. Ten years, perhaps. That's There's a change hear. in the world. And now you can go to a very prestigious institution, university, and you can talk about these things and they won't attack you anymore, which means that there's an evolution, a progress. They will listen to you, even though they do not agree. And they don't think that you're a, a flake automatically. Things are changing. And for the people, the general population, well, they were open to all these ideas decades ago. They were in advance relative to scientists and social institutions, of course. It's true. I mean, a lot of the movies and books, they portray these kinds of ideas, Star Wars, you know, the, the Force. It's interesting. Aside from your experience when you were younger, have you ever had any formal debates with people, materialists? And if so, how does it go? What are some of the objections they raise? And what are some of your counter arguments? I stopped doing that very rapidly because sometimes it was turning ugly. Too unpleasant. Yes. And I'm not like that. I don't need to impose my view on other people. I, I don't, I'm not like that. They were using insults, personal insults. They were not addressing the facts, the evidence. And so uh, I decided 
to let go of this and it was not very productive. And now I'm more interested to talk to people or do interviews with people who are at least a bit open-minded with regard to these questions. Have you ever talked to Sam Harris or read any of his books? I read uh, one of his books, but uh, no, I didn't talk to him. I'd like to see a conversation between you and him because he's this real spiritual guy. You know, I mean, he's been doing spiritual practice for ages and he's mm-hmm. done, I know. Done, done psychedelics in a very careful way and, and things. But he also prides himself on being an atheist and, and <laughs> arguing against free will and, and things like that. I, I yeah, could but, quite match with them, but I'd like to see somebody like you do it. <laughs> but, you know, you, you were talking about the implications of it a post-materialist view, and in the future, we will have another term more specific for this, but the other view, we're not only physical beings, but we have free will. Our mind can greatly influence what's going on in uh, the brain and also in the body, everywhere in the body. I was the first to show that in neuroscience with brain imaging uh, in 2001. For a long, very long time in psychology and in neuroscience, since the, the mainstream view is that we're sophisticated animals, but still animals, people thought that we didn't have any control over our emotional impulses. It was not possible. So I didn't believe in that. I didn't believe in that because I knew that uh, religious people or spiritual people, genuine people, can live their, their lives differently from a moral point of view. So I decided to do a an interesting study. My team and I at the University of Montreal, we decided to present erotic film excerpts to young guys aged between 20 and 30. They were students or PhD uh, young professors. And we knew that the emotional part of the brain, what is called technically the limbic system, would react greatly. And this is exactly what happened. But what was very interesting is that we use another condition. We scan them during another condition. When we presented to them exactly the same kinds of stimuli, but this time we taught them to become detached observers of the film excerpts and of their own subjective reactions, feelings, and what's what's going on in their bodies. And all the major activity in the emotional brain, the limbic system, vanished. And these guys became famous because of this study. These guys never practice any form of mindfulness meditation or other types of meditation. We just taught them how to do that subjectively 30 minutes before the actual experiment. The results were very impressive. So that was my, my first demonstration of that we can exert a great influence over things that are considered to be biologically programmed and genetically programmed. And then after that, that was the beginning of epigenetics and epigenetics showed that your thoughts, your emotions, your memories do have an influence over the activity of certain genes. They respond. They turn on or off. That's what we say. They are activated or not. So in reality, through our mental processes, our intentions, our plans, uh, through will, also volition, we can exert a great influence over what's happening in the brain and in the body.
So that's one thing. That's one major implication. We're not robots like in the materialist worldview. I mean, people were doing biofeedback back in the 70s and, and controlling. Certain, yes. Oh, yeah. And, and there were you know studies starting way back then on meditation and the neurophysiological mm-hmm. correlates of right. it and so on. Yeah, but it was not interpreted back then as um, I reinterpreted these data in view of uh, a different framework, a, a different st- uh, theory, a non-materialist theory. But mind can also operate in what we call a, a non-local fashion. Non-local means uh, it's borrowed from quantum physics and means not limited to a, a single point in space, like the brain. And it's not limited also to a single point in time, the present. So mind can access information from the past, but also from the future, as shown by some studies in parapsychology or the study of a so-called psi phenomena. I've interviewed Dean Radin a couple of times and he, he oh, okay. talks about mm-hmm. those things. Well, yeah. And with these guys at the Academy, we have published uh, new books, mostly for academic people, but still about this new vision, the new paradigms. What could be the new paradigms in the future? But to come back to what I was saying earlier, we have to recognize that mind does exist. People have to accept in science that it's not reducible to physical processes. It's something else, but it does exist. And not only it exists, but it takes out a great influence. And the influence is local. For instance, psychophysiological, you interact with your own body, but it's non-local as well. You're interconnected with other people, with pets, even trees. And you can see the world in terms of information, interactions, communication all the time, like internet, for instance. Of course, there's so much information and the brain in the normal state of awareness, it plays a role. uh, It acts as a, a filter. So you'll focus more on what's related to your biology. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you have pain? Are you feeling some sensations? And what's going on around you in the so-called physical world and so on and so forth? But when you alter somehow, you, you can alter the electrical and chemical activity of the brain. There are several ways you can, if you do meditation, that's what you do. Prayer, sport, you can practice sport, you can do jogging, it will change what's going on in the brain. You can uh, do sensory uh, deprivation in a flotation tank, for instance. You can take psychedelic substances and so on and so forth. You always change what's going on in the brain. It's like if you're um, reaching other frequencies, if you will, other programs, other information. And that's how you can have expanded states of awareness, spiritual experiences, psychic phenomena. You have access to information. There's nothing paranormal in the universe. There's nothing supernatural. It's only related to our materialist worldview. It seems paranormal, but in reality, it's perfectly natural. There's nothing that is not natural. It all depends on your lens through which you're looking at the world. 
in your book, you mentioned neuroplasticity and how it was once yeah. thought that the brain can't grow new neurons after a certain exactly. age. And uh, now they know that it does. And the brain is changed by just about every experience we have. Oh, yeah, all the time. And for about 100 years, at the beginning of neuroscience, it was a central dogma that the brain was a static machine, couldn't change. You had to deal with the kind of brain uh, you inherit uh, at the birth. and But that was not true. But all scientists believe that because the beliefs are implicated, are involved in science also. It's not only about facts, evidence. It's also about how you see the world. There's a subjective element importantly involved in science, like in any other sphere of human activity. Yeah, and all the sort of human shortcomings of stubbornness and greed and jealousy right. and possessiveness and aggressiveness and all those yeah. things. They all are tugging science around this way and that. You could safely say that there are no pure scientists because everyone is influenced to some degree by their human shortcomings. Exactly. I'm included in that. It's the same for everybody. Yeah, but it's a matter of degree. Yeah. Towards the beginning of your book, you present several terms, materialist, reductionist, there's scientism, I think, and maybe one or two others that I'm not remembering. Are they synonymous or does each one contain a certain um, nuance or implication? They are different. When I was talking about the scientific materialist worldview, which became an ideology, there were a number of postulates implicated in this ideology. But in reality, they are hypotheses about the nature of the world, reality. And they were first proposed by uh, Greek philosophers, even before Socrates. But they reappeared during the birth of modern science. And they were used by scientists. So materialism, it's like I, I said before, and you said also, it's the idea that everything is composed of material particles, components. So that was one of the uh, hypotheses proposed. But at the first, it was only an hypothesis. It was not presented as a, an absolute certainty. The other postulates uh, were mechanism, the idea that the universe works like a huge machine. Newton liked that idea very much. Reductionism, it's the idea that you can reduce complex phenomena or complex systems. Now we, we use this uh, term, systems. You can reduce them to their most elementary component. For instance, you take the brain. It's composed of... Uh, over 100 billion nerve cells or neurons. So that's what we study when we uh, talk of neurobiology. We study the nerve cells. But if you look, you can see also that neurons interact with chemical messengers. So you can try to reduce mental activity to chemical activity. And that is what is done in what we call biological psychiatry. And that's why we use drugs to try to interact with the various brain regions and the neurochemicals, the, the, the chemical messengers, to influence them. For instance, if you're uh, suffering from major depression, one finding that is quite robust is that there's a lack of uh, 
you need more serotonin, a chemical messenger. And most antidepressant drugs will target serotonin, will increase the production and synthesis of uh, serotonin. So that's an idea. But if you talk to physicists about the brain, they will tell you that the nerve cells, the molecules are all composed of atoms and subatomic particles. So they will propose quantum models of the brain interacting with mind, for instance. So that is reductionism. Another assumption, a postulate that was part of the scientific uh, materialist ideology was determinism. So that was the idea that everything is predetermined, is related or programmed by previous phenomena or components, and that there's no free will. But quantum physics showed that all of these assumptions were wrong, erroneous. It's been demonstrated uh, nearly 100 years ago. But in neuroscience, it's not been uh, integrated yet. It's not been accepted yet because not many neuroscientists have the time to uh, become interested in quantum physics, and it's quite complex. So there are a number of reasons. But these old assumptions uh, are not valid anymore. We know that. Would it be useful to go through these one by one and say, okay, here's the assumption and here's why it's not valid? Or do you think you did that enough just now as you were laying them out? Yeah, yeah, we can do that. For instance, materialism. Physics tells us it's really hard to find any material if you go deep enough. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You can take the brain, for instance, as a physical material system, but in reality, the brain is interacting the brain seems to act as a, an interface with information coming from other levels. You know, when you're, you're in a state of clinical death, how can you perceive? How can you remember? How can you feel emotions? When you're in a clinical death, there's a shutdown of the blood flow to the brain after 10, 20 seconds maximum. So if you're measuring the electrical activity of the brain, it will become flat very rapidly. So in principle, according to mainstream neuroscience, in that kind of state, there can be no mental processes. Consciousness cannot be there. It's supposed to be gone. So that's why um, I'm saying that all these assumptions are not valid. Right, because so many people have had experiences where they are in a state of clinical death or they're under deep anesthesia and they're they're not only seeing what's going on in the operating room, they're seeing what's going on outside yes. the building or down the hall or yes. something like yes. that, which is later yeah. verified. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. So uh, now the mainstream view, the old materialist view is still dominant, but there's a battle going on and... Uh, there are more open-mindedness with regard to new views. Uh, this is what has uh, changed. There's a dialogue. Now the dialogue is possible. Before it was not. Let's say that, I don't know, 30 years from now, the tables have been turned and whatever we're, we're going to end up calling it, the opposite of materialism, reductionism and all that, has become the predominant paradigm. What do you think society would be like? What would education be like? What would medicine be like? What would international relations be like? 
economics, world hunger, the climate situation? How do you think that the flipping of the paradigm would impact all these important things? Well, like I said, this new emerging paradigm has very deep implications at various levels. If you take education, for instance, uh, if you consider education, we have now enough studies showing that if you practice mindfulness as a way to self-regulate uh, your emotions, you will alter the trajectory of the individual. If you start very young at school, primary school, you would create a different type of uh, adults collectively if there's enough people doing it. Right now, it's, it's already uh, uh, going on, but not everywhere yet. But there are many projects in uh, various countries around the world doing this. So this is a key. Because education is a key because you don't end up with the same kind of adults if you start doing this. But we have to teach people that they are very powerful. When I speak about mind, I mean uh, mental functions, uh, intentions, will, memory, emotions, and so on and so forth. And consciousness, consciousness is a, a sort of mental function, but it's like a very big component of it. We can learn how to use mind and consciousness, but we have to be taught about this. But now we can see there are more and more studies in, in medicine, in the medical field. We see a lot of studies showing mental influence on genes, epigenetics, psychoneuroimmunology. You can influence what's going on in your brain and so on and so forth. So it's uh, making progress also in medicine. But there's another current in medicine and another trend, which is very powerful, big pharma on the other side. And what is big pharma? It's the translation at a medical level of materialism, man as a machine. So you use substances, molecules of various types, and you, you believe that by using these molecules, it will affect the, the individual because he's a biological machine, a system. So you can see right now that there's a sort of battle going on. Many people are not conscious of this, but there's a battle between the holistic vision, spiritual vision, versus the materialist model at various levels. Not only in science, in, in mainstream science, but it's the same ideology in economics, in politics. Yeah. Well, in terms of big pharma, we don't have to be black and white about it. Modern medicine has worked wonders, penicillin and oh, really? antibiotics and polio vaccine. Of course. All those things have saved millions of lives. On the other hand, I don't know, it seems like the majority of people in the United States are on some kind of antidepressant drugs. It's a very high percentage. I don't remember the exact percentage. And when you see the ads for these things on television, the, it's like mm. 10 seconds of promoting the drug and then 50 seconds of telling you all the warnings. Side effects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing in Canada. Same thing. Yeah. It's, it's on TV. And you wouldn't need that if it was an ad for meditation or something, I don't think. No, no. <laughs> no, it's true that uh, the material science has made great progress and is help us evolve from a technological point of view. And uh, what we're saying, my colleagues and I, is that it is not complete. There's more 
in the universe than only physical processes or biological processes or that's what we're saying. We're not saying that this is not true, that it doesn't exist, although it's a matter of perspective because some physicists believe that matter, what we call matter, what is it exactly? There's a lot of void involved in matter at a microphysical level and But in practical life, you don't go stepping in front of buses thinking that there's nothing there. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) No. It seems to me that just as the church used to own a lot more territory, I mean, the church used to consider astronomy to be part of its territory, for instance, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. people got in big trouble for suggesting that the stars might be other suns, Mm -hmm. might have planets around them. And and then the, the church had to relinquish some of its territory as science came along. And as you were saying earlier, the church said, okay, we'll take care of the spiritual stuff and Mm -hmm. you guys take Mm -hmm. care of the material stuff. By the same token, there might be many aspects of all the different modern sciences and medicine and pharmacology and all that, which will still be useful, but a whole lot of things which can be replaced by technologies of consciousness or mental technologies or emotional technologies or whatever that are non-physical and that will be much more beneficial and without side effects. That's what I think will happen probably in a few decades from now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And who knows, maybe it'll speed up, but uh, I mean, it kind of needs to speed up because we're at a critical point. Yeah. We have to become uh, smart (laughs) very rapidly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think you can, even relate, you can yeah. even relate what you're saying to climate change because the short-sightedness of thinking we can do whatever we want and let future generations worry uh, about it or there's nothing yeah. to worry about because I'm making a good salary and I don't want to think about the possible consequences. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is, I think, based upon a, a state of consciousness that doesn't have really good access to their inner life, no. <laughs> inner resources. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. It's uh, very egocentric to yes. think that way. Yeah. Greedy, egocentric, or international relations. I mean, look what's happening with Russia and Ukraine ah. right now. Mm-hmm. It's such a crude mentality to yep. resort to <laughs> violence like that, to make my country a little bit bigger, whatever. I mean, all this stuff, hopefully, if we all survive as a species, will be seen as such antiquated thinking. And I really think that, yeah, yeah, I think think that the materialistic paradigm that you're trying to overturn will be seen as the foundation of that sort of thinking. Yes. And it's opposite, whatever we end up calling that, as the foundation of a much more ideal world. Yes. But what we're thinking about is new in terms of science, but it's not new in terms of the great spiritual traditions of the world and some philosophers. They were talking about these things thousands of years ago. So we're not inventing, we're just rediscovering. And what we notice is that there's a sort of commonality between the the vision of the world proposed by many ancient spiritual traditions and what we call post-materialist view of the world. Yeah. And I think what we might be heading for is something where we have the best of both worlds. Because in some respects, you wouldn't want to have lived a couple of thousand years ago. I mean, you could die of a dental problem or something (laughs) because the infection would spread and Mm -hmm. so on. Yeah, something that could be taken care of very easily now. Or if you broke a leg. I mean, they had ancient treatments for these things, but they're very primitive compared to what we have now. So 
we could end up with a world that is advanced spiritually as much as it now is materially. Materially. Yeah. I believe that. And that would hopefully make our material endeavors and accomplishments not harmful as they are now, because right now it's like Mm -hmm. guns in the hands of children. We have these powerful technologies, but we don't have the emotional and mental and spiritual insight to wield Mm -hmm. them responsibly. Yeah. Let's hope for the best. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see. We have plenty of time left if, if we want to go into some more details. And your book does go into a bunch of details. You present various bits of evidence why mm. the materialist paradigm doesn't stand. I mean, because the, we could call them anomalies. There's so many things which conflict with that mm-hmm. worldview. And maybe these are some of the things that are making some of the people you mentioned change their thinking about it. But let's review some of those things. The first uh, line of evidence, uh, it's related to uh, our capacity to modulate what's going on in our brain and uh, in our body. Because when you think about it, it's it's not that obvious. But you can learn to take control. You can use meditation. You can use uh, deep abdominal breathing. There are various ways, but intention, visual imagery. But you can influence, really. And that's what I've shown That's one of my biggest findings through brain imaging, the discovery that we can greatly alter. You change your mind, you change your brain automatically. But it goes both ways. You affect the brain and the body, and it will alter also your mental experience, your mental activity. Sure, and we all experience that all the time. Yeah. So that's one line of evidence. Now, before you go on to a new line, in each case, as you bring up a line of evidence, let me play devil's advocate a little bit and see how you respond. In that one, what would a materialist reductionist mechanistic person say? They would say that doesn't prove that the mind exists. That doesn't prove that consciousness is fundamental. That all can be explained to mechanistic points. Exactly. That's what they say. They will say that you don't need something, uh, well, they call that a ghost in the machine. You don't need that because it's only, like we discussed before, it's only certain brain regions acting upon other brain regions. And uh, you don't need more to be able to explain these phenomena. And I recognize that. I I admit that. But we can also use a a non-materialist perspective to interpret these findings. But I agree with you. That's right. So it doesn't prove anything, but it's one piece of evidence among many. Yeah, because for people who do not believe in free will or power of intention, it's hard to interpret if you don't recognize what's going on mentally in an individual. It's very closely associated in terms of uh, physiological activity and what you're entertaining at the mind level. It's deeply interconnected. To give a few examples, there's a scientific discipline called psychoneuroimmunology studying the relationship between thoughts and emotions and memories uh, and the nervous system and also the immune system, the endocrine system. And now there's epigenetics also. So there are an increasing number of studies showing that we influence all the time the activities of our genes based on the kind of thoughts we have and the kinds of emotions we experience and the traumas we have, and so on and so forth. And uh, it's all interconnected. It's like if the physical body is a, it's a huge uh, 
information system or highway and everything is interconnected through chemical messengers and hormones uh, and so on and so forth. Somebody the other day told me that the word materialist is kind of a pejorative term. I'm not sure of a better term, but for the sake of convenience, let's keep using uh, that. Well, now it, they use a physicalist or physicalism. So is that less insulting or something to say a physicalist? It's accepted. <laughs> All right, whatever. So let's call them physicalists. All right, mm-hmm. so this thing you just explained about epigenetics and the mind and, and mental processes actually changing the genes, would a physicalist have a rationalization for that? Yes, it would say that thoughts or intentions are neural activity in brain regions. And these uh, neurons, this, this activity is connected to the activity of... Uh, certain glands, the endocrine system through the hypothalamus in the brain, which is a brain structure involved also in endocrine uh, function. So yeah, they will explain that you have electrical phenomena connected to chemical phenomena, messengers, but it's all based on physical processes of various kinds. So it wouldn't blow their minds any more than I being able to raise my arm or make myself breathe fast or breathe slow or something. They they just have a fancy explanation for how it could change the genes and not have to acknowledge anything not physical. Yeah. But it's harder when you talk to them about the second line of evidence, so-called side phenomena. For instance, your daughter is away and there's something negative happening and you feel her, even though she's a, 50 miles from uh, your home and, or you can have your dog uh, in the woods and you will feel something. There's something wrong. And very often this is true. It's related to something uh, happening uh, in the physical world, something negative happening and uh, not always negative, but more often than not, it's negative stuff. I've interviewed Rupert Sheldrake in his book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming yeah, Home. Yeah. I've studied that every which oh, way, yeah. and it's significant. Or I interviewed yeah. this guy named Stephen Post, who was taken on a very scary motorcycle ride, going 140 miles an hour in the rain and stuff like this. And he, he got back to his college dormitory at 2 in the morning, and all of a sudden the payphone on the wall rang. He never picked it up, but he was right there and it was ringing. So he picked it up and mm-hmm. it was his mother calling from the other side of the country saying, Stephen, are you all right? It woke her up hmm. in the middle of the night. Yeah. Uh, there's a million examples like this that we could bring. Yeah, up. but the, the physicalists, they will say, oh, that's random stuff, like yeah. coincidences. And they can just say that forever. There are some pretty significant studies by Dean Radin and others, which are oh, um, yeah. hard to just brush off. Oh, yeah. If you're willing to look at them. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, very hard to explain. But usually these people, they like the idea of uh, what has been called promissory materialism. So it's it appeared about 300 years ago. French philosophers said that. Perhaps we don't have the explanation, the materialist explanation or the physical explanation now. But one way or another, if we have enough time, we'll find out the physical explanation of the phenomena. So they were saying that 300 years, 400 years ago, and they are still saying, some of them are still saying that. Give us more time and we'll mm-hmm. find an explanation. Yeah. Another phenomenon is that they refuse to look at the evidence. You've probably participated in things with the Galileo Commission, have you, or the Scientific yeah. and Medical Network? Yes. 
the Galileo Commission was so named because some of Galileo's contemporaries, particularly church authorities, refused mm-hmm. to look in his telescope right. <laughs> because he was telling them something that would conflict with their theology yeah, if it were exactly. true. And so they didn't want to look at it. And that's the way some of these guys are now. They, they, you know, they say to Dean Radin, well, it couldn't possibly be true, so I'm not going to bother to look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, have yeah, a nice but... day. <laughs> exactly. If you're really uh, looking for the truth, uh, yeah, that's you go not, where it leads. You cannot act like that. Well, that's what we were saying an hour ago. Is that don't tell me about the, uh, you're interested in your salary, you're interested in your right. tenure, you're interested in your reputation, and the truth is not necessarily conducive to those things. No, 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 <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and finally, the third uh, line of evidence it's the near death experiences, but mostly uh, during cardiac arrest because during clinical death. That's even harder to explain because the brain is not functioning. Sure. People like Eben Alexander, you know, who had this marvelous experience when his brain was pus. But then to that, they say, oh, it's oxygen deprivation or you just had a, a vivid dream or... You can say that when you're not dead, but if you're clinically dead... And in some cases, the people have been clinically dead for several minutes, yeah. sometimes 45 minutes or even an hour. Then they don't know how to explain that. They don't have any explanation. Yeah, you had a guy in, in your book, and I've heard this story before, where he was found comatose in a field oh, yeah, and yeah. brought into the hospital. You tell the story. He was, yeah, deeply comatose, and he arrived at the emergency. It, it was a, an hospital in the Netherlands. So they had to move his dentist to reanimate him, because at a certain point, the heart ceased beating and was not breathing anymore. So he was clinically dead for, uh, in this case, uh, a few minutes. But he was already clinically dead, and uh, he had the impression uh, to leave his physical body and floating above his physical body in the room. And he saw the nurse removing the denture. And finally, after a few minutes, the doctors and the nurses, they've been able to reanimate him. And he stayed at the hospital for almost a, a week. And about five days after that, before he was ready to leave, he saw the nurse who removed the denture and he asked him, it was a, a male nurse. He asked the guy to bring back his denture. Yeah, he and, described uh, it. I said, I saw you remove the denture. You oh, yeah, put, yeah. You put you it, in such, it in such a cart and wheeled it off. And... <laughs> yeah. And the nurse was uh, very surprised to hear yeah. that. But there are many, many cases like that. What is it Martin Luther King said? He said, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Somehow I feel like we could adapt that quote mm-hmm. to say the arc of the realization of, of truth is long but it bends toward realizing it there's a beautiful sanskrit saying i forget the actual sanskrit but the translation is that that which is closest to truth lasts longest and a similar thing they, they also say satyame vajayate which means truth alone is victorious or it wins in the end so i have a feeling that the time has come that we're in a time when these outmoded ways of thinking just don't stand a chance, but it's it's just going to take them a while to get deconstructed or for something better to take their place. We're seeing uh, great changes in the world at this time, at various levels, you know, in various yeah, fields. Really. And uh, it's a time of great change. 
but uh, I, I'm optimistic. Yeah, me too. In all of your visions and psychic glimpses of things, do you see a period of upheaval and chaos as a transition to a better world? Or do you think that we can breeze through without too much of that? Oh, I feel that, uh, yeah, there will be chaos for a while. Yeah. We're already in this, but there's a lot of fighting everywhere, politically, economically, you know, the war. Militarily, yeah. But at the same time, there are more and more spiritual people. There's more positive people realizing that we need to help each other. And if you look only at the uh, television, the news or Internet, you, you have mainstream news, I mean. You have the impression that everything is going uh, negatively. It's it's like hell here. But in reality, that's not the case. There are so much beauty on earth and magnificent things and people and activities. There's a bias for mainstream science to focus on the negative stuff, but there's a lot of uh, beautiful things also going on at yeah. the same time. There's a saying in the newspaper industry, if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, this is significant. We we do need to know what's going on in the world, I think. Yes. And I watch the news, mm-hmm. but I only watch the news for a smaller chunk of my time. And the rest of my time is focused on this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any sense of um, timeline? Do you think this chaotic period is going to drag on for the next century or a decade? Or what do you think? No, I don't think it will be a century, but it's hard to say. I don't know. I hope it's not too long. I hope to be still alive, still physically here, to be able to see major change, positive changes. Yeah, I feel that way too. I've got about 13 years on you, but I take good care of myself so we can both be around. (laughs) Me too. When you were young, you had this download when you were eight, and then you had this vision with the being of light. Have you Mm -hmm. had any other visitations or downloads like that that have upgraded your I've, knowledge? I've had very deep mystical experiences a few times in my life. And during such experiences, the, the small self, the ego, my ego vanished. But it's more at the level of being uh, what was happening. It was uh, emerging with, it seemed, the source of everything in the universe, everything that exists, and more. Very impressive. But I'm a mystical type of scientist, um, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's but it's very interesting about that. It's funny because at the last project of the Academy for Postmaterial Science, they produced a collection, a book, an anthology of more than 50 essays of scientists from various fields, well-known scientists. And it's about the most significant spiritual experience in their life. You see... Something like that would not have happened 20, 30 years ago. This wouldn't have been possible. But now, it's not only old guys and women, and even young scientists, younger scientists, and they, they're doing this now. It seems to, more natural to them to do that. They don't feel the need to hide uh, like I did. Uh, well, I did to a certain extent, but for a while. But Things are, are changing. It's a sign of time. That's great. Is Ray Hernandez involved in that? No. No, you know Ray? He's somebody I interviewed some years ago, and he, he got in touch recently, and he, he was talking about this whole compendium of books that's on this topic. And 
I was mm-hmm. just, okay, I was just wondering. And that organization is still happening? Uh, is the Academy? Oh, for, yeah. Okay, it's growing. You, you have conferences and things like that? Or? Uh, well, we had a conference planned, but COVID. it was done through uh, online because of the sanitary situation last year. But yes, yes, that's the plan to organize uh, something at uh, in Tucson uh, at the University of Arizona. I'd like to go to that. I'll, I'll I'll check into it. Okay. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? We covered a lot, I think. <laughs> yeah. Good. Okay. So people can get your book, and I'll have a link to it on your page on Bat Gap. Do you have a YouTube channel or anything else? What else can people do if they want to hear more from you? I'm reorganizing my website. So for now, I don't have a website in English, but it it will come soon. It's more my books. And uh, I have lots of interviews on on, uh, YouTube, I believe, but I don't have a a channel. You have your own channel. No problem. I'm old-fashioned. I'm an old guy now. (laughs) (laughs) Younger than me. Oh, yeah? Doesn't show. Okay. So, yeah, let me know in the future if you have a new website or, or anything else that you'd like me to add to your page on BatGap, and I'll add it on there. Well, thanks so much, Mario. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, same for me. Next week, I'll be speaking with a woman named Anne Mathy, talking about Kundalini. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know Anne? No, but oh, I've had a you've had some Kundalini of experience. One yeah. of my mystical experiences that was associated with uh, this phenomenon. Yeah. And I never practiced. So it came apparently spontaneously. At first, I was thinking that I was going mad or something like that. But it was stressful at first. But I, I heard uh, an inner voice saying, just relax, let go. We're taking care of you. Don't be afraid. Yeah, that's and, great. Uh, yeah, these days, it seems like every week somebody contacts me and says they've had some Kundalini experience. And in many cases, they're scared, you know, because they don't know what it well, is. And there's help for that kind of thing. There are people who are kind of experts in it and who can you know, help people. Oh, yes. through it. All right. So thanks again. And uh, Thank I really you. enjoyed speaking with you. Thank Take you. Take care. Have a nice weekend. You too.